For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Fraser Myers here, Deputy Editor of Spiked. We've got a really special episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show coming up for you today. The brilliant Lionel Shriver, who's just published a new collection of non-fiction writing called Abominations, joined Brendan live on Zoom at an exclusive event for Spike supporters. If you're not familiar with Spike supporters, this is our online community for people who regularly donate to Spiked. You can become a supporter for just £5 or more per month or £50 or more per year. And in return, you'll get access to exclusive events like this one, plus many more exclusive perks. So if you never want to miss another Spiked event, and we've got plenty of exciting ones to come, then become a Spiked supporter today by going to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Now over to Brendan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this very special live recording of the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. And as Fraser has already mentioned, my very special guest, Lionel Shriver. Lionel, welcome to the show. Always nice to talk to you again. We have no real social relationship. We have actually conducted our friendship through podcast. Absolutely. And I think it's a pretty good way to conduct a friendship, actually. And I I wanted to remind you that you were my first ever podcast guest when I interviewed you in your home in Brooklyn a few years back about lots of the kinds of things you and I have subsequently been writing about. So I want to dig down into some of that stuff today just to see how things are going in the world at large. Um, I'm sure you don't need much of an introduction for the people who are watching this and, and for the people who will subsequently listen to it. They will know that you are a renowned novelist, a brilliant columnist, and someone, I think it's fair to say, who is not uh, uh, unwilling to go against the grain. And I, on that front, I wanted to kick off by asking you a fairly broad question, which is about where we're at culturally at the moment. I'm generally a fairly optimistic person. I like to think that sanity will eventually probably sometimes prevail. But when I look around at the moment, it does seem that some of the things that you and I and other people are concerned about, like the intensification of identity politics, the corrosion of freedom, uh, the fallout from lockdown and the fact that we haven't had a proper reckoning with lockdown yet, all those kinds of things do seem at the moment to be getting a bit worse and certainly are not necessarily going in a direction that we would like them to go in. So if you were to take the temperature of where culture is at at the moment, especially in relation to the kinds of things that you're concerned about, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic? Well, I'm notoriously perverse, so I'm going to be perverse here and be a little bit optimistic. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we've necessarily reached peak woke. Mm. I, mean, I have people asking me all the time whether, you know, is it downhill from here? Is this craziness finally starting to burn out? 
And it's it's going to be impossible to tell without a sense of perspective. Once it's really happened, then we can look back and say, whoa, what, what was that? <laughs> um, so we're not we're not at the point of perspective, but I I do think that there are some promising signs. I mean, for one thing, uh, ever since the uh, identity politics movement really took off, and I think most people would identify that as 2015, uh, not only have the crazies, you know, got their word around disproportionate to their number, I might add, they don't really represent a very large percentage of the population. Um, but uh, there's also been uh, the growth of of the anti-woke, you know, and we're part of it. Yeah. So and that's to be celebrated. And, and we have a lot of colleagues now, you know, people like Douglas Murray, uh, Rod Little. Um, I won't go on, but we have a lot of of people, we have a little army. Now, uh, we're, I don't think that the anti-woke people are naturally joiners, right? <laughs> so we don't think in terms of our little club. Uh, and, and I think it's best that we don't because um, there's something creepy about that. And you don't want to stop thinking for yourself. I mean, that's one of the things that's wrong with the left is that they think, as a little club, they're like this unicellular amoeba. Mm. And you have to think all the same things about all of the same topics. You know, that, that, that whole JK Rowling thing is about the fact that she went off on one thing. She agrees with them on everything else, but you can't differ even a little bit on a single topic. And I don't, I don't think we're like that. I think that, the, the forces aligned against them are much more various and we're still independent thinkers. So we probably don't agree on everything, but we do tend to agree on the author- authoritarian inclinations of the left. So I think, I think that is optimistic. And I think that we're garnering a fairly large audience. And, and that's because we actually represent the majority of ordinary people. Yeah. I also think that there are some real signs of progress on the issue of transgenderism in particular. I, th- I think that we're we're starting to turn a corner on that. Now, not fast enough and, and not fast enough to save a lot of people from doing their lives a terrible amount of damage and and, and perhaps permanent damage. Yeah. Uh, and and I've, I have to say this is an issue that disturbed me from the start, which I would, I would target 2012. That's when it took off. That's when we started seeing all these documentaries about transgender children, you know, three a night. Um, but uh, it, it, you know, the, the weird thing about this movement is it started off not only as an explosion, but also with the understanding. I don't know how they got away with this. That you couldn't say anything about it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you really could not say anything discouraging. It was just wonderful. All these people deciding that they were born the wrong sex, and and they they had they had to start acting like the other sex, and and you know, ideally they got all these drugs and surgery, and it's supposed to be all 
so lovely and wonderful. And I actually did, I'm ashamed to admit, keep my mouth shut journalistically for three or four years because it was forbidding what was happening to anybody who said a discouraging word. Yeah. And, uh, and around about 2016, I stuck my neck out. And that was earlier than most people. But weirdly late for me, I have to say. <laughs> um, and, and I think starting about 2020, with the publication of a couple of really brave books, Helen Joyce's Trans and um, Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage, um, now talk about sticking your necks out. That was extraordinary. And they got incredible amounts of stick, but they're still around. Those books sold extremely well. Yeah. And, and I think that we have carved out a place now that we can, can have a rational discussion about this phenomenon. For one thing, we can stop acting as if it's not a fad. It's definitely a social contagion. Yeah. And it used to be that even even saying that would just end your career. Yeah. And it doesn't anymore. I mean, I've, I've said that countless times and I'm still here. It's funny you should raise trans as an example of um, where gains have been made. I completely agree with that. And it, I was thinking earlier on that actually on the first ever podcast I did with you a few years ago, um, you we talked about the trans issue and we talked about it in a way that other people at the time were not talking about it either because they weren't willing to or because they went along with the uh, intellectual contagion aspect of the trans ideology uh, but we talked about how authoritarian it was um its misogynistic consequences what it would mean for young people in particular who were being put on this conveyor belt and that was a few years ago. And I always thought that you and a, f a handful of other people were slightly ahead of the curve on some of this stuff. But I wanted to, on the trans thing, I wanted to ask you about why that seems to me to be a good example of how bad things can get if we don't have freedom of speech and if we don't have the right to talk about things openly. I mean, if you look at the controversies at the moment around mermaids, for example, we now have a charity that is supposedly aimed at children, children who feel that they might be supposedly trans, which has had to sack one of its trustees because he gave a speech at a pro-pedophilia conference. It now has another scandal involving one of its advisors. Oh, I don't know whether you can, you can say pedophile anymore. Yeah, no, a minor attracted persons, I think, is, yes. is the phrase that they use. And its latest scandal is this uh, one of its advisors who has been posing uh, in schoolgirl uniforms and um, exposing his private parts and so on. Uh, you, you're not even allowed to say he because apparently he's he's really a they them. But isn't that an example of if you just don't talk about this stuff, if you don't have the freedom to interrogate social phenomena, you will end up in a situation where these things happen in plain sight and people are just turning away and not talking about the things they should be talking about. Well, when you don't have freedom of speech, you leave open the possibility that the powers that be promote a lie and they get away with it. Yeah. And we've seen that during the whole COVID period. And I'm losing track of the number of lies, actually. I have trouble listing them out. Um, uh, 
First off, of course, this notion that lockdowns are epidemiologically effective, they were not. And they were a catastrophe. And by the way, I think that's another point on which little by little, we're winning the war. Because there are any number of commentators now um, who are kind of acting as if they were always against the lockdowns. Of course, they didn't say anything about it at the time, but, you know, better late than never. Um, This idea that uh, the vaccines are effective, they drop off in efficacy after after about five months. The idea that the vaccines stop you from transmitting the disease. Lie. Total lie. Masks work. No, they don't. Lie. There's huge amounts of evidence demonstrating that they're completely ineffective and have all kinds of downsides. Not to mention, I hate wearing them. Um, If you let the authorities control the so-called narrative, then they get away with all these lies because and and we have seen uh, uh, government and big tech in league uh, with each other to promote their version of reality. Uh, And it's been it's it's scary. And, and, uh, you know, oh, you know, the origins of of COVID, it necessarily came from the the wet market in Wuhan. Probably not, you know, probably not. So we are evolving a situation which, you know, it makes the whole world like China, right? China just tells people what, what it wants to be true. You have to get with the program. We like to think we're different. But... Lately, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that the the most one of the most discouraging transformations of late has been, you know, when the Internet was first invented and and, and became almost universally available. It it first it promised us uh, all to have a voice, you know, so that we were going to have this multiplicity of sources of information and we could make our own decisions about what was true. We, you know, we, and, and we, we had this great vehicle for self-expression and now it's, it's being twisted into uh, an instrument of social control. Mm. And I think that's a tragedy. And uh, in relation to um, COVID and lockdown, of course, that's something I wanted to ask you about. You were, one of a very small number at the beginning who was raising questions about uh, lockdown, but to say uh, we didn't have enough discussions in government about the impact of lockdowns and, and, and the negative impact of, of lockdowns. And in that piece, you you made the point, you asked the question, essentially, why did so many Brits go along with lockdown? Why wasn't there more pushback? And I wanted to ask you about that. I, I have very high level of faith in the British people, uh, particularly in the post-Brexit era. I think the British people's selection of Brexit as the best option for the country was an extraordinary act of wisdom, democratic wisdom. Um, And I'm I'm reluctant to, to say that the British people go along with things because they feel cowed or they feel fearful or because the government tells them to do certain things. But you believe, don't you, that during lockdown, people absolve themselves of critical thinking and basically went along with the, what the authorities told them ha- that had to be done at that moment. 
Yes, the herd mentality took over. And I should clarify that while in that column, because I was writing for a British magazine, um, I criticized the British people. My real disappointment is with everybody. (laughs) (laughs) um, As a novelist, I'm obviously interested in just human nature. I think most of us are, really. It's not just a novelist thing. And it turns out, you know, to be, uh, we, we are easily manipulated by fear and we'll believe anything. And we'll, for the most part, we'll do whatever we're told. And if if there's some conviction that has seized the rest of our society, then we go along with that too. We don't question it. I mean, I just, I, it's, it's, it's been really depressing for me. I, I find that uh, the experience of COVID has disheartened me about the evolutionary stage we have reached, which is not very advanced. And it's also discouraged me on a political level uh, about the the nature, the skin deep nature of so-called liberal democracy. Uh, if our rights were real, then they wouldn't be able to be canceled. Right. A right is is something that is inalienable, inalienable. It's a tricky word. Um, And you can't just suspend them for months and months upon end if they're real. So apparently they're not real. And the difference the difference between our governments and authoritarian governments are negligible. It's it. You know, we can change to a different kind of government literally overnight. Now, that is scary. We just abdicated every right we ever had literally overnight. Boris Johnson got on TV and suddenly couldn't leave our house. Now, that's appalling. Yeah. And I do I do hold individual people responsible for not saying, hold on a minute. We've never done this. You know, the, one of the weird things, I've said this in the column, one of the weird things ab- about the whole lockdown phenomenon was it was only by this, like the second one, in, I think that was in November, um, where people are saying, you know, oh, here we go, another lockdown. I mean, <laughs> what do you mean another lockdown? We've never done this before. Why is this now so routine? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, what struck me is how how easily people adapt, you know, to a whole new protocol, a whole new way of thinking, uh, w- without questioning. You know, oh, oh, this is this is reality now. This is the way we do things now, right? Oh, we we, we can't have a, a a pint without a substantial meal. You know, oh, well, the government has always told us what we can order in a pub. <laughs> I mean, for Pete's <laughs> sake. Mm. And um, and I just I just found people incredibly pliant, mm. pliant and compliant. And, you know, that's not my nature. And I sometimes wonder if there's something wrong with me or <laughs> maybe there was some gene that got dropped. The, the 
the obedient, the obedient gene. (laughs) I, um, I was, I was horrified by how readily everyone got with the program. Yeah. And, you know, at least in the United States, and in this way, there was some national difference. There was a small rump of rebels and they got huge amounts of stick and were portrayed as, you know, the tin hat brigade and everything. But I found it a relief that there were parts of the country where, you know, no, they weren't going to take it. No, they weren't going to just roll over and do what they were told. And I think there is some national difference there that that Americans have been a little more resistant. I wanted to push you slightly further on the fear question, because I actually agree with you. And I really liked that column that we're talking about, because part of being in a democracy and part of believing in freedom and human autonomy is holding people responsible for the decisions that they make or the way in which they behave. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say about a, you know, a pretty large majority of the British population. Um, why did you accept that this was definitely the right thing to do? Why yeah. wasn't there more discussion? Why wasn't there more debate? You know, we may eventually have come to the conclusion that a, a, a short lockdown at the very start was the right thing to do, but there was never a discussion. And I think a lot of people accepted that a discussion wasn't really necessary, which is concerning. And one of the things I find very frustrating now is that there is this uh, people looking back at the lockdown and they're saying things like, do you remember the crazy discussion about eating a scotch egg in a pub? Do you remember yellow tape around park benches? Do you remember that, you know, children's playgrounds were closed down? Wasn't that a crazy time? And I think to myself, yeah, I remember all of those things because Mm -hmm. we were writing about them on Spiked and we were asking, is this really necessary? What's going on in the world? Uh, But there has become this trend, I think, to say, wasn't lockdown mad rather than asking the question that you've asked, which is, why did we accept that lockdown was the only solution to this problem? But in relation to the fear point, and particularly in relation relation to the British people, the thing that I find quite curious, and I've never come up with a satisfactory answer to this, is that in some ways, the Brexit moment, and uh, I know that you, like me, supported Brexit, um, the Brexit moment was in some ways an anti-fear movement of ordinary people. So people resisted Project Fear. They didn't listen to the people who said fascism would come back and the economy would go down the toilet and there was even a front page headline on the evening standard. There will be a gonorrhea outbreak if we are no longer part of the, <laughs> I mean, really crazy stuff. And uh-huh. millions of people said, no, we don't believe it. We're going to withstand this pressure and stick with our desire to see Brexit happen. So in that political sense, they pushed back against fear. So was there something particular about the fear around COVID that meant it was a more successful project? Is it because it was a very isolating moment? People were told you had to stop talking to others, stay on your own, don't go outside, don't take part in a protest. Was it the collapse of democratic norms, which meant that people ended up being more susceptible to project fear in that instance than they had been during the Brexit time? I would suppose that maybe the fear of contagion uh, is more primitive than fear of not having any money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it, 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 the government was was playing on 
on deep biological uh, terror and that, that, that goes back since there were people, right? So it, that wasn't that hard to trigger. And, uh, you know, I have a vivid memory of the first time I went to the supermarket after this stuff happened. And I, I put plastic uh, gloves on and um, I, I wore a mask and, you know, I, and, and I, I was a little disconcerted about whether I was supposed to wash my groceries. Um, but I remember by the time the shop was over, I realized how impossible it was to get the gloves off and not touch anything. I mean, it, it didn't work. I, it was very clear to me by the end of that shop that there was no way if this thing was so contagious that just touching something, I was going to get it. Then I was going to get it because yeah. the, the protections I was using were silly. And I, it only took one shop to, to realize that. However, one of the reasons that I, I, I try to remember that is that I, I don't want to pretend that I was impervious to any fear of COVID because we didn't know very much about it. And therefore, you know, I I was as I had been made anxious. Yeah. Uh, successfully, I was. It worked with me too. It wore off pretty fast, especially when it became clear that the people who were really, really in danger from that virus were massively older than I was. So, yeah. you know, my my fear level did start ramping down. But it's it worked with me too. But I like I like the fact that you make that contrast of, of defying fear and giving into it because the contrast you know that is I think one of the main links between Brexit and COVID. And mm-hmm. I hadn't put that together before, so I like that. Um, and I have to say that uh, in 2016. The vote on the referendum really surprised me. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I developed a kind of boringly repeated line when Americans asked me what I th- thought was going to happen in the referendum. And I always said, well, you know, I, I think that the British are almost universally a small C conservative people. Hmm. And I just don't I don't I don't think they've got the. The taste for change. You know, I, the nerve, I, I, I just, I didn't think that the British had it in them. And I underestimated you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and I was just astonished. I, I have to say, I was thrilled. I was um, a little sorry to, I just missed the boat. I, I left right before the, the referendum for New York, where I usually spend the summer and stayed up really late and, when when the vote came in, I mean, we just we exploded in cheer and, mm-hmm. and astonishment and jumping up and down in the living room. Yeah. It was um, it was an exhilarating moment. And I I've never been so happily surprised and, and genuinely impressed by the British because the uh, boy, the propaganda mm-hmm. on on the referendum was huge it definitely rivaled covid i think covid finally beat it 
But the establishment did not want that referendum to go for Brexit. And, you know, I think to a degree it backfired. Yeah. Now, because because it, w- it was in its nature authoritarian and, and, and certainly condescending. It's like we know best. You know, don't be silly, little people. Yeah. You know, we know what's good for you. And it's the same condescension that, that the EU embodies. So it illustrated uh, why we need to get out from under these people, because these are all the same people. Yeah. Right? They have all the same attitude. Uh, it's, it's the same paternalism. Don't worry your pretty little heads about it, dear. You know, we know best. Yeah. And uh, it's not attractive. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that um, description of the Brexit phenomenon. And, you know, f- from my perspective, I, I always think that Brexit completely transformed my relationship with this country. I mean, prior to 2016, I was not the kind of person who would wave the union flag. Uh, I wasn't particularly over the moon about being British. I didn't see what the defining qualities of Britishness were. But since the Brexit referendum, that has completely changed. I would dress myself from head to foot in the British flag if the moment (laughs) arose. And I think I feel an incredibly strong connection with um, the people of the country and also the idea of the country and the idea that it should be independent from Brussels. And I'm sure that it had that same impact on many others as well. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we have this situation where we have a revolt of ordinary people against that condescension, as you describe it. Uh, the pinnacle of it, in some ways, is actually the the vote in in December two thousand and nineteen, when it becomes clear that people still want Brexit and they're going to vote mm-hmm. for Boris Johnson in their millions to make sure that it happens. And then three or four months later, we get COVID. Project Fear is finally successful. Democracy is literally suspended. And um, the sovereignty that we clawed back from Brussels is taken away from us by our own politicians. And there's something, I think, quite depressing, a a great victory followed by a a crushing tragedy, which I think is just sad. I mean, it was was such an an exhilarating moment and it didn't last very long. It seems uh, historically unfair. But I have to say, I've also um, encountered this gloating uh from abroad recently uh because people are interpreting the economic straits this country finds itself in as the result of Brexit which is rubbish yeah. yeah right i mean obviously the war in ukraine combined with idiotic absence of energy uh planning in this country for 20 to 25 years uh, is is a catastrophe in terms of the energy bills and also catastrophe for business. It's and then on top of that, Rishi Sunak spent four hundred billion pounds paying people to do absolutely nothing, and that money was created out of thin air, which uh, certainly explains why we have such a high inflation rate. I mean, these are the main contributing factors to you know a high deficit the high high inflation uh the the fact that interest rates have to go up it has nothing to do with brexit mm-hmm. but because historically it is at least you know it does follow 
after we've left the European Union, um, it, it becomes ideologically convenient to blame Brexit. Now, that said, you know, everyone who voted for Brexit, were, was they were not saying, oh, we want to leave the EU because we think it's going to have an immediately explosive effect on the economy. That's not why we wanted to leave. It was about sovereignty. It was about having control of your own country. And, you know, in poll after poll, uh, Brexiteers said, you know, yeah, they were willing to take an economic hit. And there were a huge portion of people who said, you know, they'd even be willing to lose their jobs yeah. if it meant getting out of the EU. Whether they entirely meant it, I'm not sure. But um, the point is that it was anticipated that it was not necessarily to Britain's advantage to leave the EU, at least in a short term and maybe even in, in a, a medium term sense, though, you know, there was plenty of evidence that in the long term, it might work out well. And we're not anywhere near the long term yet. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that that just just not that was not the nature of the project to um, expand the economic horizon of the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I need to come on to the questions from the audience now, but I'm going to exploit my privilege as the person who um, is this podcast is named after and ask you one more question myself, which is in relation to freedom of speech and particularly literary literary freedom, which is something that you have spoken about and written about at length over the past few years. And, um, you know, we don't need to go back into the Brisbane Writers' Festival uh, controversy and, and other situations in which you raised the freedom of the author to imagine whatever he or she wants to imagine, which is obviously an incredibly important part of artistic freedom. But again, on the question of whether you feel optimistic or pessimistic, how do you feel right now about artistic freedom and literary freedom in particular? Because on the one hand, as you said earlier, there are more voices saying, look, wokeness is crazy. Identity politics has gone too far. We need to recover freedom and sanity. But then on the other hand, we've had the attack on Salman Rushdie as just one very grim example. You wrote a very good piece about that saying, look, the terrible tragedy is that terrorism works. Terrorism has the effect that it sometimes actually desires. It does, you know, that terroristic climate or that chilling climate does manage to silence people, to stop people from saying things they think shouldn't be said or from exploring stories they think they don't have the right to explore. So given all of those things over the past few years, where do you think we stand in relation to the right of people to write what they want to? Well, um, as we started with, I think journalistically, uh, we're in a pretty good place. We have our own places to publish, not just Spiked, but Quillette and City Journal. There, uh, there are any number. I mean, uh, my my email queue is inundated <laughs> with yeah. newsletters, um, and that's a good that's that's a great thing. And I think I think <clears throat> journalists, you know, commentators are have really put themselves out and and have a voice. So if, if you want anti-woke material, 
It's totally available. Yeah. I could spend all day reading it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's impossible to keep up. So that's that's great. But the situation in publishing is much more dire. Mm. I'm, by that, I mean book publishing. Mm. Uh, you know, yes, my publisher has stuck by me. Thank you, HarperCollins. And, uh, and I am not having trouble publishing my books. Uh, but uh, in general, publishing has become much narrower. They're totally obsessed with diversity. But by that, they only mean uh, skin color. They do not mean diversity of thought. So it was observed not just by me, but any number of people uh, who, who have an eye inside the publishing industry who said that the satanic verses would not be published today. Yeah. Flat out. So I guess, you know, Salman Rushdie would be in better shape, but he wouldn't be as well known. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, that whole business with Rushdie, I mean, it's a literalization of what cancel culture is all about. Cancel culture actually is a form of terrorism, mm -hmm. right? It's like, if you say, if you get out of line, if you say anything we disagree with, you're going to lose your job. Mm. You know, we're going to make it so nobody will, no one will have you on a podcast, for example. You will lose your voice. And for, for, for writers and, for example, that's a kind of death. Yeah. Right? That is a metaphorical death. So, you know, yes, it's, it's not, I haven't been stabbed while I'm doing an event. Uh, but there are other kinds of knives out. Yeah. And I'm afraid they've been very effective in publishing. Uh, publishing is mostly run by women, and I don't want to do my sex down, but all these people don't have balls, and they need them. Uh, they're not... Uh, they, they tend to be very compliant. They're, they're pleasers. They're all left wing. Um, publishing is one of those areas which attracts a certain kind of person, uh, usually from a, at least a middle class level of education. So th they tend to be all from the left. Uh, they, they think together. Their idea of brave publishing is to publish something that's even more left wing. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I feel, I feel really like the exception um, in a weird way. The fact that I'm an exception has redounded to my benefit mm. um, because I stick out, you know, being another left wing writer. Uh, doesn't get you noticed. And by yeah. the way, the one thing that we have neglected to do, <laughs> speaking of my books, is mentioned that um, oh, I have a new yeah. essay. I have an essay collection out. This is my first nonfiction uh, publication. It's called Abominations, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. Yeah. It has the funniest um, 
the funniest cover I've ever had. <laughs> it's a picture of a kitty cat in a bear trap. <laughs> um, and and I think that's, uh, that spiked readers would especially enjoy it. Absolutely. And oh no, everyone should get Abominations. It is, not only does it have Lionel's wonderful stuff on all the kind of things we've just been talking about, but also some more personal things and funny things. And I love the piece about why you're addicted to going to the gym, for example, or working out, all those kinds of things. So it, it has a huge breadth of Lionel's journalistic work and essays, and everyone should unquestionably get that and read that. Um, I wanted to, I, I really agree with the point you've just made there about there are different kinds of knives and they're all out at the moment. And it brought to mind a Ray Bradbury quote, you know, there's more than one way to burn a book. And I think that really is the lesson of our time. You know, sometimes books are literally burnt. Sometimes it's more metaphorical and more subtle and you're cancelled rather than set on fire, but the consequences can sometimes be equally pernicious. Um, I want to now bring in some of the really good questions that we're getting from the audience. There's one from Paul, which is actually something I wanted to ask you myself. You slightly touched on this earlier when you mentioned the revolt in the US against lockdown. And even though it involves some tin hat people, you still thought it was a positive thing because people were pushing back. Paul says, one of the most pernicious effects of the dominant narrative being uh, distrusted is that it encourages cynicism and conspiratorial thinking. And that's really true. And what I found over the past few years is that the more that we are told there's only one narrative on lockdown, there's only one narrative on trans or, or whatever else it might be, the more people I think struggle to make sense of the world in which they live and they can slightly go down certain rabbit holes and start to think that everything is a conspiracy. Everyone's out to get me. There are people in the shadows who want to destroy my life. So how can we push back against the more conspiratorial re rebellions against contemporary uh, political discourse? Well, I have to confess that on my own account, one of the casualties of the COVID era uh, is I have become profoundly mistrustful in a way that I wasn't before, mistrustful of institutions, mistrustful of information, always looking at where it's coming from. Um, for example, I would not trust anything that the CDC in the U.S. says. Uh, that's the health authority. Mm -hmm. I do not trust them. And I, now I, because I can't trust anything they say about COVID, why would I trust them on anything else? Mm -hmm. And I used to really trust the CDC. Uh, I did a, a, a book some time ago that involved uh, AIDS and I got a, a lot of information from the CDC and I didn't, I didn't think, oh, this is tainted. This is political. And now I do. Now, I find that a loss. I also can't trust the New York Times anymore. Mm. Uh, when I'm reading articles written by foreign correspondents whom I can be, trust are older, that's probably very good journalism. Mm. But the rest of the paper, no. And I mean, I can't even necessarily trust it on a factual level. Uh, and I, I mean this as a loss. This is a loss. Mm. 
And I do think that there's a danger of becoming mistrustful in a way that is contaminating of your entire worldview and, and, and which shuts you off from uh, sources of information that, that, that are perfectly valid. And so you can't believe anything and you live in this, this fog of, I suppose, just ending up believing whatever you like. And that's just ignorant, right? We don't yeah. want to go there. But I mean, I, I, I'm also vastly mistrustful about anything to do with climate now. Yeah. I can't believe it because there's only one thing you're supposed to think. Yeah. And, and therefore, I don't necessarily buy it. I hear these statistics and, and they're often generated by computer models, which have been rigged because that's what they're like. But I, I do not like this. I don't like this. I don't like the feeling. I feel differently than I used to. I feel differently watching the news and reading the newspaper. And um, I'm very sympathetic with anyone who feels that they are in danger of sliding into this conspiratorial mindset because there's a, it's very tempting. That's, it, that's the natural endpoint of mistrustfulness is paranoia. Yeah, absolutely. For me, the the turning point in my relationship with the New York Times, the final turning point was last year, I think, when they published an article, a news article, you were talking about news, um, about an 83-year-old woman in Brooklyn who decapitated another woman. And it was only in paragraph seven or eight that you found out that this 83-year-old woman was in fact a man who identifies as a woman. And you just think this is the perfect example of news being made subservient to propaganda in you know a, a way that is literally out of 1984. And I just thought this is not a paper that is trustworthy, even in its news pages, even in telling us what's happening in, in New York itself. Um, okay, a few more questions. One person asks, and this is a good one, not least because you wrote a brilliant piece for Spite on Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who you're very excited about, and I am excited about him too. Um, someone asks, I would be interested in more reflections from Lionel on the political social divisions in US politics. So let's make that a question about American politics more broadly. You, you are keen on Ron DeSantis. Does that mean that you think there's still legs in American populism, in post-Trump populism. And does it also mean that you think there needs to be a pushback against the kind of slightly corroded democratic establishment that's currently running things there? Well, I've been very disappointed in Biden, mm -hmm. for whom I voted. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm on the record as quite anti-Trump. Yeah. I do not want to see him president again. I think there is a real danger he will be president again. And I'm not sure that if Biden is president again, we're better off. Uh, I, I would like to see neither one of them on the ticket. Uh, I, um, I wrote that piece about Ron Santis in, in a state of optimism. In truth, I am not especially optimistic. Right. I am worried that Trump is going to end up being the nominee for the Republicans. And that's going to put me in a right pickle because mm. I really don't want the Democrats 
to, to have the White House next time. I, and this is such an opportunity because Biden has been a huge disappointment, not just to me, but to, the, to a lot of people who voted for him, moderates who, who didn't want to, to elect an identity politics mm-hmm. lunatic. Um, so there's a, a wide open door of the White House for the Republicans if they can just nominate somebody relatively sane. Yeah. And I think DeSantis fits the bill. He's not Mr. Inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that he's going to have a tough time. But he has a real constituency. I'm just not sure that statistically that constituency is large enough. It certainly isn't right now, according to the polls, to get him nominated. Yeah. One of the things that slightly disappointed me about the anti-woke um, rebellion that you talked about quite rightly earlier on is that in the US context, a lot of those kinds of people said, look, we have to fall behind Biden because he won't do the culture war stuff. He will be a more sane voice. He will bring politics back to a level, if slightly boring, playing field. But in fact, he's ended up being a pretty identitarian president. I mean, he refers to significant numbers of Trump supporters as um, semi-fascists, almost Mm -hmm. fascists. Uh, He's pushed a lot of the BLM agenda. He has completely bought into the trans ideology. And um, he made that really bizarre speech where he tried to sound like Churchill, you know, fight them on the beaches, fight them on the on the fields, where, but he used it in relation to the trans issue rather than Nazism. So um, Biden has been a disappointment, not only because he's a bit of a doddering person who doesn't seem to be fully in control of his faculties, but also because he's done the thing that lots of people thought he wouldn't do, hasn't he? By bringing into the White House some of these newfangled ideas that are pretty dangerous. Yeah. I mean, for example, the the fact that he um, picked his Supreme Court justice purely on the basis of race and sex. I thought that was obnoxious. Yeah. I mean, it would be one thing if he chose her because she was uh, the best candidate. But how can we believe that now? That she was the best candidate because he announced before he even entertained nominating her that the the condition of of his pick would be race and sex. And this this is no way to choose your leaders at all. So, yeah, I am. Um, I think that uh, Biden is a puppet. I, I think the people behind him are quite hard left. And, and are telling him what to say. Okay, this is a good question here and something that I've tussled with myself over the past few years. Um, this person says, I agree that there are signs of progress in the anti-woke movement, and that's good. But my concern is the degree to which teachers seem to have become activists and schools have been captured by some of the ideologies that we've been talking about. Um, it says, I fear that children aren't listening to Lionel's army, which obviously... <laughs> They're not, which is a shocking, terrible state of affairs. This person says, I'm ashamed to say that I can't convince my own son that J.K. Rowling is not transphobic. So how problematic do you think education has become, particularly school education, pre-universities? I mean, universities are at the moment pretty much a lost cause. But pre-university in schools, is that not the arena, do you think, where lots of this starts off and, and gets entrenched quite early on? 
Yeah, in the United States, it's starting to be a real battleground. Yeah. And I'm afraid that it's requiring parents to roll up their sleeves and and get involved in their children's education rather than just, you know, send your little ones off to to school and you don't have to worry about them. It's not like that anymore. Because these, you know, it's it starts as I understand it in the uh, teachers' colleges, be, because the teachers themselves have been indoctrinated. And it's it it loops back to what you mentioned to start with, which is the universities, right? Mm-hmm. So it's in tertiary education that the teachers, as well as everybody else, the teachers to be, are being indoctrinated. In this critical race theory, you know, transgender mania, all of it. Uh, And then they take that into the classroom and it's and it's coming in through in the U.S. school boards or whatever the equivalent is here. And I haven't seen quite the same organizing in Britain. I haven't read about it anyway, but I think that that parents are going to have to start getting wise to what their children are being taught. It's really, it's really poisonous. And, you know, I know in the U S you know, kids are white kids are being, you know, put in a little separate part of the room and told to feel ashamed of themselves. That's one of the perversities of this whole movement is it's so wildly racist in, in its obsession with racism. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's true. The, the the schools are are a big problem, and I think on that optimism pessimism thing, I'm more optimistic on a popular level and on a on a freedom of expression level that we're getting our word out that our that that we are having the discussions that the left doesn't want us to be able to have. But on the institutional level, I'm very worried. Yeah. Um, here, for example, the civil service is bought into this stuff. Teachers have bought into this stuff. Administrations of schools have bought into the stuff. The uh, upper levels of corporations, mm-hmm. foundations, charities. The people who are running things, again, they don't represent a very large proportion of the population, but they do occupy positions of power. And in a way, you don't need to persuade the rest of the population to come along with you if you occupy those positions of power, because you control the levers. You control what the kids get taught. You control what the employees, what, what creepy you know, anti-bias courses they're obliged to take in order to keep keep their jobs. I mean, it, it's this is this is where we're told. Not only are we losing, we have lost, mm-hmm. and I don't know how to get control of those institutions back. In the same way that it's very difficult to know how how to ever prevail on the in the university because. Those institutions are lost. And that's why, you know, this it's it's not going to change the world or anything. But there's that new university in Austin, Texas, mm. which is uh, basically saying, you know, yes, universities are lost. So we're going to start a new one. Yeah. And they're attracting people like Kathleen Stock, you know, the, the, the canceled 
the people have been who've, who've lost their jobs over free speech is, issues and saying, well, come here, we'll pay you, we'll give you a job, we'll give you students. So maybe that's what's necessary, but uh, that means we're going to have to start an awful lot of schools. Yeah, I think th- those kinds of pushbacks are incredibly important. And you mentioned the parental revolt in parts of the US, which I think is really inspiring. And some politicians, not only Ron DeSantis, but also Glenn Youngkin in Virginia have actually tapped into some of that parental grief and angst very well, and are pushing back against the kind of woke indoctrination in schools. In the UK, you're absolutely right, there's been far less of that. But there there was an instance a couple of years ago where some um, Muslim parents in Birmingham uh, protested outside the school, their, their kids' school, which was teaching their kids LGBTQ stuff and the idea that you could change sex. The problem there, I think, is that it was quite easily written off as uh, religious fundamentalists pushing back against enlightened education, when in fact those parents were raising incredibly important questions about whether it's the role of education to inculcate children with these eccentric new ideologies. Um, so more of that, I think, in outside schools and inside schools is, is very important. A um, couple more questions before we end. I've got a question from Alex who says, you talk one of the things you've talked about in relation to something like the transgender ideology is the speed with which it became taboo to criticize it and to, to raise questions about it. That's changing now. But the question Alex asks is, how far back do the roots of this kind of thing go? How how long has this been brewing for? And I guess I wanted to add a little extra question on top of that. What do you think about the people who say that actually the trans craziness has its origins, ironically, in feminism itself and the deconstruction of sex and gender that some feminists engaged in in the 70s and 80s, in which they're now worried that it's gone slightly too far with a trans movement. So how do you see the history of something like the trans mania? I don't see trans mania as an inevitable endpoint of feminism. Uh, The best aspect of feminism, for me anyway, and I grew up with the old-fashioned, you know, women's liberation kind, yeah. Um, is the designification of sex. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that there were necessarily no differences. I guess some feminists would, would maintain that. I wouldn't uh, between the sexes, but that they were not as those differences are not as important as the differences between individuals within sexes. And the the aim was to realize we're all, we're all people and we are we have the same rights and the same kinds of ambitions and uh we can be friends across sexes and we recognize each other's humanity and that's far having far more in common than you you differ and Thanks to the success of the women's movement, I personally have not especially concerned myself with feminist issues. I don't feel obliged to. Uh, I am not. Uh, I mean, I'm fine. I'm female by accident, by dint of birth. I didn't get to choose. 
I'm not going to fight it. Uh, I'm not convinced that being a man is necessarily that much better. Uh, and, and, and I'd rather talk about something else. And I, I have been fortunate in not having to fight so hard as, as people who were, were behind me uh, to be allowed to talk about other things, to concern myself with things that interest me, like demography, for example, not, not necessarily talk about uh, women's rights all the time. Mm. Being female is not very important to me. Mm. And I guess you could say that it's important to me that being female is not important to me. <laughs> and, and what distresses me uh, about the transgender movement uh, among many other things about it um, is that it is re-emphasizing sex. It's yeah. re-establishing the importance of sex as if that were the defining aspect of one's individuality. And I reject that wholeheartedly. And I, I think that a, a better endpoint for feminism uh, is, is to say, you know what? We're basically the same. We have a few, few differences, but uh, otherwise... We're going to treat each other as treat each other as equals, um, and the, the 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 differences are going to be the differences between individuals, and not the differences between sexes. And now it's like you you put on a dress and you've discovered your personhood. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but when I put on a dress, it doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, Lionel. Final question. This is from another Paul who says, do you think that the social studies graduates who are currently demanding that their view should hold precedence over everyone else's, will they be shocked when the next generation rebels against their worldview? Uh, and I think that's an interesting question because, well, you can answer that question on its own, of course, but do you think that the next generation will rebel? I mean, that has generally been the scheme of things over the past century or so that generations rebel against the one that came before them. Do you think Generation Z or, or whatever follows Generation Z will push back against the ideological excesses of uh, the millennial era? Or do you think things are going to, generationally, things will go in a downward spiral for a period of time? That's hard to say. I mean, I get the impression that a lot of this ideology has communicated itself to at least another generation to to my dismay yeah um yeah yes you would you would certainly think that this stuff would get tired and because it is tiresome it's tedious it's also joyless it's judgmental it's anti-life um it's very prim and prudish and dictatorial and prissy. Um, and it's, it's so unappealing mm. um, and humorless. Yeah. Let's not forget humorless. Yeah. You would think that, that, that a generation whose parents were like that would get tired of it pretty fast. So I am hopeful that the nature of, of young people, the nature of being a rebellious, mocking kid will prevail. 
because there's nothing easier to make fun of than this stuff. Absolutely. Okay. Well, the only thing it, it remains for me to say is if you, any of you want more of this common sense and radical reason from Lionel, then you have to check out her collection of essays, which has uh, just been published, Abominations, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. Lionel Shriver, thank you very much. Love talking to you, Brendan. Always do. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.